The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Would you pray with me as we go to the Lord and ask for his help? Father in heaven, we ask that you would incline our hearts to you and to your word. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in your book and unite our hearts to fear your name. And we pray that you would, through the power of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, satisfy our souls in Jesus more than anything else this morning. That we would leave changed, transformed, and delighting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. As we begin, I want you to listen to this quote. One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. That quote comes from D.A. Carson, written about 30 years ago in his book, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And his point is that if Christians don't expect suffering or even think that they might be exempt from earthly suffering, that when it comes, we'll be completely caught off guard and devastated. If we don't spend time thinking about suffering, then when it comes, we won't be ready for it. We all hate suffering. No one enjoys it. It's painful and unpleasant. And many of us would rather not even think about it, much less experience it. Suffering is a part of our fallen and broken world. But what's worse than suffering? Can you think of anything? I would argue it's unjust suffering. When we're mischaracterized, misunderstood, misinterpreted, and then punished for either what we didn't do or what we thought was right, and what others think of as evil, that's even more terrible. Most of us become outraged and indignant and angry when we suffer unjustly. And yet that's precisely what Peter is calling believers to this morning in our passage in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. He's calling us to have the perspective of being servants of God. And the main point of our passage is that as believers, we're to submit to authorities and even suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ, being mindful of Him. We're to live so that Christ would be honored and displayed. And this is a profoundly challenging word for us this morning because none of us likes suffering. 
Whole industries have been created in order to alleviate suffering, like pain medication and medical intervention or renewed interest in stoicism or meditation, secular meditation, so that we could escape the pains of this world. None of us likes suffering. And yet Peter is calling his readers to a different pathway of thinking, not conformed by our human natural desires, but conformed to that of Christ. He calls believers not to mainly invest their energies as much as possible to to run away from suffering, to get away from it as far as we can, but rather to submit to it and to instead follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is hard for us to grasp. Many of us don't even like wearing masks, which is a minor inconvenience, much less unjust suffering. And so our plan this morning is to look at this passage in two sections. First part is be subject to your masters in verses 18 to 20. And then the second part is looking at Christ's suffering in verses 21 to 25. And I think Peter's aim this morning is that he wants believers to trust God in all things, even in unjust suffering. And while that's easy to say, it takes a lifetime to learn. And so we come now to this first part. Look with me at verses 18 to 20. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here in this first section, we see a command and then we see motivation and explanation. Those three things. And Peter's flow thus far has been in in chapter 2, 11 and 12, he says, believers are called to have good and honorable conduct in the social sphere, in the public sphere, so that people would see those good deeds and some of them might even trust in Jesus. And then last week we saw in chapters 13 to 17, Christians are to submit to governmental authorities. In the political sphere, we're to submit. And here, he calls his attention, turns his attention to servant and master relationships. And I think before we jump in, we need to give a word on this word servants or slaves. In 1 Peter 2.16, just a few verses earlier, he used a word there, but living as servants of God, which is typically translated as slave or bondservant. And then now he uses a different word in the beginning of verse 18 that communicates sort of a household servant. And he's trying to convey that this section is about the household, how we're to relate to one another within a household. But I think it requires us to give some preliminary words as we think about slavery or bond servants or servants in Peter's context in contrast to American slavery that we often think of. Peter does not condone, endorse, or encourage slavery. Instead, he's telling believers, this is how you're to live in your present social context, in this current structure. Slavery is not an institution ordained by God. 
In fact, it's part of our fallen and broken world, a manifestation of sinful fall. And slavery in Peter's day, which is quite different from our own history of American slavery, during the Roman Empire, many slaves were captured in war or conquered as part of the expansion of the Roman Empire. So as the Roman Empire continued to expand, as they took over land, entire countries, entire regions of people would become enslaved, or others would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. And after they paid the debt, they would be then be free. Slaves were generally well-treated, were both skilled and unskilled laborers. Some served as doctors and nurses and teachers and managers and musicians and artisans. Greco-Roman slavery wasn't based on race and had extensive Roman legislation regulating their treatment, including their ability to purchase their freedom. Unless we think that this was a wonderful institution, it wasn't. Slaves could still be brutally mistreated and were considered property and possessed very few rights. So as the Roman kingdom continued to expand, taking over large regions of the world under the Roman empire, under the Roman kingdom, it's likely that many Christians were slaves or household servants. And the question, the pressing question is, what does faith in Jesus Christ look like? How does it transform us? What does it manifest into? What does faith in Jesus look like when we're living in this context, in the midst of this social structure? And he begins with the command, be subject to your masters. We can define this command to be subject. The second time it shows up of three times, we saw this earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to governmental institutions, every human institution. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And here we see this command to be subject, which we could define as humbly putting oneself under the authority of another. And the way that they're to do that is with all respect. You see that in the middle of verse 18. Be subject to your masters with all respect. This is translated with all fear, very literally. And are servants to fear their masters then? Well, no. We saw this earlier in 1 Peter 1.17. It emphasized fearing God above all else. Look at verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. And so, knowing that you were ransomed by God, don't fear those around you, but fear God. Or we see this later in 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. And so what he's calling them to when we are to submit or be subject to masters with all respect, we're called to honor what God has instituted or put over us. Believers are called not to sin or to violate God's commands such as being commanded to do what God forbids or prevented from doing what God commands. We saw this last week when Pastor Sam was talking about Daniel continuing to pray even when it would be illegal. So there would be consequences, though, in disobedience when they say we must obey God rather than men, which is what Peter said in Acts 5, that there would then be punishment. 
suffering. And so when believers not doing evil but doing good receive punishment, we're to endure that punishment. Now, we see the motivation and explanation in verses 19 and 20. Look with me there. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so here in verses 19 and 20, we get the motivation and explanation. And a couple of things we can first notice. He uses the word endure three different times in these two verses. It's explaining what does it mean to subject yourself to even an unjust master who's calling you to do something and he's harsh, he's unjust. And yet, it's, it's your job as a servant or as an employee he says, well, submit, be subject, and to do it with all respect, enduring sorrow and suffering. And then he says, you're to do it mindful of God because this is a gracious thing. We'll look at each of those. So first, he says, mindful of God. This can literally mean being conscious of God or having a conscience calibrated to God's way of living. Believers submit because they fear and revere and honor God before anything else. We're mindful of God. Their relationship with God, their vertical relationship with their heavenly father informs their horizontal relationships with others. They know that their earthly master is not ultimately the ultimate authority in their life, but rather it's God. Second, he says, this is a gracious thing. We see this twice, one at the beginning of verse 19 and once at the end of verse 20. He says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What does that mean? Well, the NIV uses the word commendable, but the word here is charis for grace. This is a gracious thing, and I think it likely means God's favor or blessing. And so the point is this, when you're suffering, God's grace is upon you. This is God's grace to you in the midst of unjust suffering. God's favor, God's blessing, God's empowering strength is upon you. Because this is answering a very real question for Peter's readers. That in the midst of this, we're suffering. And not only are we suffering, we're suffering unjustly. God, where are you? Don't you hear us? Don't you see what's going on? We're suffering. And I'm doing the right thing, and I'm getting even more suffering because of that. Are you, have you forgotten us? Is this the way that it's supposed to be? Is this according to your will? And what Peter says, this is a gracious thing. God's favor and blessing is upon you, even as you endure, being mindful of God. It's a reminder that we have the audience of one. There is a very present grace, God's approval. His smile is upon his people when they suffer because they're conscious, they're mindful of God, because they ultimately are submitting and enduring suffering, not because fear of their master, because of, but in reverence to their father who is in heaven. But I think there's more than this. 
Not only is there present grace, but there's a future promise of grace as well. Look with me at verse 20. It says this, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So the the question is, well, if you sin and you're punished, do you get any credit or reward or blessing? And he says, well, no, you don't. But what's implied there is that when you do suffer unjustly, there is a credit. There is a blessing. There is a reward. So not only is there this present experience of God's grace, that when you're suffering, God sees you. He's with you. He watches over you. He cares for you. And he loves you. That you do not suffer alone. You're not forgotten in his plan. You haven't deviated from what he's in control of. But rather... As you suffer, God's grace is upon you and there is a future reward. There is credit that's going to you. And I think what he's referring back to is all the way back to chapter 1. That we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading reserved in heaven for us. This future salvation, it's so good, so amazing. He spent so much of chapter one telling us about what we have as believers so that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. The point is that you have so much awaiting you in heaven. It should make present trials and suffering pale in comparison. If I promised you $100, but you had to stick your finger into a mousetrap and let it snap on your finger. How many, what did I say, $100? I meant a million dollars. Big difference, right? If I gave you a million dollars to let your finger get snapped on a mousetrap, how many of you would do it? Well, I think many of us. Why? Because the pain pales in comparison with the sum of money. The payoff is worth it. How much more is a heavenly inheritance worth it? How much more is our future inheritance worth it? How much more do we get with the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord? It makes a million dollars look like pennies. So believers are called to love and live differently. Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward or credit will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Believers are to look differently, to love differently because of what God has done in and through them. So what's our motivation for enduring suffering? God will never shortchange his people. He will never overpromise and underdeliver. Instead, as we live in this life and as we obey him, as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, as we entrust ourselves to him, he will always give us more. There's more grace, more grace to uphold us, more grace to sustain us, and then future grace that will bring us all the way home. We don't just grin and bear it in the midst of reflecting Jesus in the midst of a pagan society, but there is more rewards and an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. Theologian Tom Schreiner writes this about the believer's experience of suffering. He says, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. 
It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. And this is a hard word. We are to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, which we'll see later. Believers are called to suffer because Christ suffered. Righteous sufferers, though, are never abandoned, never left out to dry. David Livingston, not the pastor here at Bethlehem, but the Scottish physician and missionary, pioneer missionary with the London Missionary Society, said this about his experience of suffering. He said, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he says this sentence, I never made a sacrifice. In the midst of all that he experienced in terms of suffering, all the good things he left behind, he says, compared to the glory that I get in Jesus Christ, salvation, heaven, being with God forever, I never made a sacrifice. All of suffering will pale in comparison to what we receive in him. And Peter is calling believers in this Greco-Roman time, to nothing new. It's what Jesus has said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Same thing. Blessed, rejoice, because you are counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Acts 5, 41. It's like when the apostles, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. This is the pathway of believers. We suffer because Christ suffered. We follow in his footsteps. And I think it's important just to give a word here. Peter does not address how Christian masters should treat household servants here in this passage. But we shouldn't conclude that Peter or the apostles didn't care or even encouraged the institution of slavery. While they didn't encourage the overflow, uh, overthrow of slavery, they do show that the gospel has implications for all of life. If you're in this place, if you're a wife suffering from an unbelieving husband, or if you're a servant suffering from an unjust master, or if you're a citizen of uh, a government, we're to submit in these ways. He shows that the gospel transforms the way in which we live. Paul writes in the book of Philemon, he encourages Philemon to treat his runaway slave Onesimus as a beloved brother. He says, receive him as you would receive me. And the point is, our identities in Christ, our values, the principles, the realities and truths of following Jesus impact all of life and how we're to live. It transforms our lives, whether we're slaves or masters, servants, employees or employers, and in every station of life. And so I can imagine for some of us this morning, maybe you're a righteous sufferer of injustice, or maybe you will be soon. 
Maybe you're passed up for a promotion because you're open about your belief in God. Maybe you're fired or laid off because you spoke about unethical business practices. Or maybe you missed out on an internship or an opportunity because of your faith. Maybe you're discriminated against because of your biblical sexual ethic regarding marriage, gender, and sexuality. Or there will be a time when we will have to call evil good and good evil in order to close the deal or sign the contract or get the promotion. And what Peter wants to say is don't do it. Don't do it. It's worthy. It's good. There's a reward when you suffer with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you're called to. We see that in verse 21. As believers, we're to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And now he turns in verses 21 to 25 to answer the question of, well, must we suffer? Do we have to, Peter? Look with me at verses 21 and 25, 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he says, to this, believers, you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So we have an example to emulate in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. I won't read it. But he says, a disciple is not above his master. If they maligned the master, they're going to malign the servants. If the master suffered, the servants will suffer. And if you familiar with your Bibles, as you hear verses 21 to 23 and all the way to even to 25, you're beginning to hear echoes of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm. And Peter doesn't necessarily cite it directly, but he's loosely borrowing all of its language, citing it in parts, following Jesus' passion narrative. He lived a sinless life, spoke no untrue word, suffered verbal abuse and slander at the Sanhedrin, ridiculed by the guards, derision by the thieves. Jesus opened not his mouth, but entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Then he was crucified on a cross. Christians are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as our example But not only as our example, but he's the paradigm to which we conform our lives. When we say, Jesus, I want to look more and more like you. Some of the things we pray every single week. I want to become more sanctified like you. I want to behold your glory. Being conformed to one image to another. We want to look more and more like Jesus. And as we do that, it's not only just kind of moral goodness that we stop sinning and do more good things, but that we actually begin to suffer with Jesus, being found worthy to suffer with him, bearing in our bodies his suffering so that others might see and believe. And then notice the phrase at the end of verse 23. He says, but continued, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This was Jesus' hope. And this is our hope this morning. 
That if we suffer unjustly, we know that we can entrust ourselves to a Savior who judges justly. We will always be vindicated. There is no wrong that is committed against you that will go unaddressed. Ever. From your childhood until you die in old age. Every injustice, every wrong, every sin committed against you will be addressed, will be accounted for. Either at the cross, where Jesus takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, or in punishment. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. That frees us from taking vindication, taking vengeance in our own hands. God will vindicate his people. And Jesus knew this, and we know this. And so we can suffer unjustly. And yet suffering has a purpose. We saw this earlier in 1 Peter 6 and 7. He says, believers have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith produces endurance and steadfastness, James 1.3. Or in Hebrews 5.8 says it even more explicitly. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And so if Jesus suffered, how much more do his disciples follow in his footsteps? In suffering. And so we have an example. We have the paradigm for which we conform our lives to in the person of Jesus. But then now, in verses 24 and 25, he switches gears a little bit. Look with me there. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter switches gears just a little bit. I don't know if you noticed it. He goes from showing Jesus as our example. Look, he did not threaten, and we shouldn't threaten when we suffer unjustly. He did not revile when reviled, and we should follow in those same footsteps. But then now he turns and he says, but Jesus' suffering was unlike any other suffering ever before and ever will come after. Jesus' suffering was substitutionary atonement. It was for us. Do you see that? He says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy. Whoever's hanged on a tree is cursed. He was cursed so that we would never be cursed. He wasn't cursed so that we too would be cursed. So we have to follow in his footsteps. He was cursed so that we would never be cursed, so that we would have God's grace. We would have God's smile upon us. We would have a living inheritance, a living hope that's undefiled, unfading, that we would be rescued out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's saying Jesus' death was for us. It was unique. It was powerful. It accomplished what we could not accomplish. It purchased us, it reconciled us, it redeemed us so that we're his. And so when we think about suffering unjustly, he says, look what God's done for you. You're his children. 
You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret that somehow he's forgotten you. Somehow he doesn't see you. Somehow he doesn't care. No. God is all the more for you because look what Jesus has done. He gets right to the very heart of the gospel. Substitutionary atonement for sinners. Jesus bore our sins in his body. So that what? We might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a very power at work in that, transforming us. We've been given a new heart. A heart of stone's been taken out. A heart of flesh has been put in. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us so that this really hard word of submission, of being subject to others, even those who are evil, unjust, can be accomplished by God's people because we're new people in Christ. By his wounds, we have been healed. And I want to speak a word to perhaps some this morning who are watching online, or perhaps some in our gathering, that this sounds all like utter nonsense. Why in the world would I suffer unjustly? Over my dead body, You'll hear from my lawyer. And that's right. It is utter nonsense to follow in the footsteps of Jesus unless you've been given the spirit of Jesus, empowered by him, having your sins forgiven, knowing that you can entrust yourself to him who judges justly, knowing that you have an inheritance that's so much better, that will make any earthly suffering pale in comparison. And so for those who are not trusting in Jesus this morning, we're calling you. Do you see? He says, by his wounds you have been healed. There's a picture of the great exchange taking place there. That Jesus takes our sins upon him and dies. And he gives us his righteousness so that we could become perfect. We could become righteous. That God views us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That by his wounds you can find healing for your sin-sick soul. And there are probably some this morning who have never experienced that. Never experienced what it means to have a joy, a delight, a living hope, an inheritance that's awaiting you. And we want to call you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot just get your act together, but Christianity is about admitting that you can't get your act together and that you need the help of a Savior, entrusting yourself to Him who judges justly. Not only judges justly, but has done everything so that He might take away your sins and give you His righteousness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then for us this morning, as we transition to communion and the Lord's table, believers have been empowered by Christ's death to live now for righteousness. See that in verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What Peter emphasizes there in verse 25, right at the end, is yes, you have earthly masters, but guess what? 
you have a good shepherd in the heavens. The name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus could entrust himself to the one who judges justly because he knew that he would be vindicated. And now we can entrust ourselves to the good shepherd knowing that we have earthly masters. We have bosses. We have others that we're in relationship with that we need to submit to. We can submit because we have a good shepherd. We have the one who is the overseer of our souls. He will watch over us. He sees us. He cares for us. And he loves us with an infinite, eternal love. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. So our true masters are not earthly masters, not necessarily in the workplace or the social sphere or governmental authorities, but our true and lasting master is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can trust in him, in all things, in whatever we're facing, even in suffering unjustly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that we would surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ if we haven't done so already this morning, that we would trust in you in all the circumstances of life, knowing that you are for us. You've given us an example And you've accomplished what we could not accomplish so that we have now received power and strength in Christ to live this way. So that others would see and give praise to you in heaven. Cause the name of Christ to be exalted in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.